a mectam of David. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your holy ones see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we long to do what we've just sung with our whole being, our whole soul, all of our heart and all of our mind to worship you, not just in song, but in all of our life. And so, Father, we pray now speak to each one of us, give us ears to hear and hearts to listen and then obey. For Jesus' sake we ask. Amen. Do you take a seat? Fire alarms. Burger alarms, carbon monoxide detectors, tsunami warnings. We invest a huge amount of money, a huge amount of time in things to keep us safe. Doctors, insurance, seatbelts, warnings on hot coffee that hot coffee is hot. We want to be safe. Well, this is the last of our summer psalms for the year, and it begins with a prayer of King David. Please keep me safe. It's a wonderful, powerful prayer of a believer as they commit their, ha- their life into the hands of their God. And the one who does this, the one who makes God their refuge, enjoys a tremendous security. It's a security that every human being longs for. Every piece of protection that we raise around ourselves attests to that, from inoculations to insurance from savings to safety lights, alarm doors to armed services, all of it witnesses to this deep yearning for security that ultimately is only found in the Lord God, in his refuge. Well, this protection of the Lord, this safety in his care, safety in the fullest sense of the word, is the right and privilege of the believer in Jesus Christ. It's a right and privilege of every believer in Jesus Christ, but it's a right and privilege we often don't enjoy the fruits of. And I pray as we look at this psalm this morning, the Lord will convince us of just how deeply secure we are in Christ, and as a result, that like David, we will enjoy the fruits of that in our life now. Let me just tell you how this psalm works. In verse 1, we've got David's plea, his prayer, keep me safe. And then in verses 2 to 8, we have a beautiful picture of the life of one who's taken refuge in God, of of the believer, if you like. And I want us to see that this is a picture of the beautiful life taking refuge, not of the things we need to do to take refuge. 
Do you see the difference? This is not things we need to do to try and, and find refuge in God. No, this is the life of the one who knows they're secure and lives out those blessings, lives in the light of it. And I want us to see how wonderful it is. And then in the third section, 9 to 11, we have the promise given to the one sheltering the Lord. I will not abandon you to the grave. It's the promise of the resurrection, that our ultimate destiny is absolutely secure. And really, this is the foundation of the whole psalm. Because our ultimate destiny is secure, David can say the rest of it. Well, let's look first at this plea. Verse 1. Keep me safe, O God, for, you, for in you I take refuge. The for here is very important. Keep me safe because I take refuge in you. Refuge is, I'm told, a, a covenantal term. And in the ancient Near East, when a king was making a covenant, he would come to people and he'd say, look, I'll be your king and I'll do certain things for you and you must serve me. I'll be your king, I'll protect you, I'll bless you, but you must serve me. You can only have me as your king. And that's how the covenant works with God. I will be your God. You will be my people. You will serve me and I will protect you and bless you with all the power in my armory and so do you see what David's saying he's not saying keep me safe because I'm a nice guy he's not saying keep me safe because somehow I deserve it no he's saying I am one of your covenant servants you've promised to protect me so do as you've promised to do we've no idea when this psalm was written it could have been when uh, David was fleeing from Saul in, in a moment of dark need fleeing for his life could just have been as he's in the palace amidst the hurly-burly of life. But life in this world is unpredictable, isn't it? And David knows if he's to be secure, the Lord must protect him. And so he prays, keep me safe. Well, whatever our situation, it's a sensible prayer, isn't it? It's a wonderful prayer because the one who prays it shifts ultimate responsibility for keeping themselves safe from themselves to the great God. Now, this isn't fatalism. I had a friend who was going to Africa, and the doctors told him he needed certain injections, but he didn't want to get them. And so he said what I think he thought was quite pious. He said, if the Lord wants me to get sick, I'll get sick, and if not, he'll look after me. Now, that sounds kind of spiritual, doesn't it? It's actually very stupid. Because God uses means. It's right that we take insurance and use doctors and have vaccinations. It's right that we lock our doors at night. God has given us those means. But when we use the, the means that God has given us wisely and then we cast ourselves upon him in this prayer, we know that ultimately he's responsible for our safety. We are totally secure. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that bad things don't happen to us. All of us live in this fallen and decaying world. All of us will get sick we know that painfully this week. Death still touches us. But if we've rolled our security on God, if we've taken refuge in him, the creator of the whole universe has got our back. Well, that's David's plea. And then see how life can be for one who takes refuge in God. Verses 2 to 8 is this picture of a man or woman living in the shelter of the Lord's care. Verse 2, I said to the Lord, notice Lord in capital letters, the personal covenant God. I said to my covenant God, you are my Lord, my master. I will serve you alone. Then he says something so profound, it's easy to miss. Apart from you, 
I have no good thing. Apart from you, I have no good thing. We know in the New Testament that the Lord's brother, James, wrote every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. You see, this doesn't mean we just do religion on Sundays and then the rest of the week we enjoy the good that we've kind of generated by our own efforts. No, everything we have is from God. If you have some good thing, it is from God. Whatever day it came, there's no odd secular sacred divide here. But it goes further than that. If somehow I could enjoy something apart from God, it would cease to be good. I have a picture in my house of a Puritan called Obadiah Sedgwick. And underneath it's a little inscription of, of some words he wrote. And he says this, No good man, in the context, no, no believer, no believing man or woman, ever lacked anything that was good for him. I may lack a thing which is good, but not which is good for me. It's an extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? No good man ever lacked anything that was good for him. I may lack a thing which is good, but not which is good for me. If I could somehow have that thing that is good, secretly it would cease to be good apart from God. A Porsche is a good thing. But I take it, by the fact I drive a battered, old, a battered up old Suzuki, that a Porsche is not good for me. Maybe one day it will. I'll keep praying. But do we see that the things, there are good things, many, many, many good things. But if the Lord has not given them to us, they are not good for us. And you see what that means? It's a wonderfully profound truth in, the, in a consumeristic society like our own. If I am taking refuge in God, I don't need to keep looking over my shoulder and wondering what blessings I might be missing. I have nothing good apart from God. There is no good thing apart from him. It's a wonderful truth to meditate and mull on. Well, we see verse 3. This impacts David's values. As for the saints, that is the believers who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. William Temple, an Archbishop of Canterbury, said the world is like a shop in which uh, somebody has switched around all the price tags. And that's true of people as well as things. All the things that should be cheap are expensive and all the things that are expensive are worth nothing. Think of the ones we glorify in, who the world glories in the rich, the famous, the celebrities. But everything they have is temporary and transitory. Here, here today, gone tomorrow. And David says, no, I value the believer. To me, it is the saint who is glorious. I don't need to be obsessed with Meghan Harry. I don't need to be obsessed with some rugby player or some singer. No, these brothers and sisters around me, these people who are not famous, not particularly special, they are the ones I delight in, they are glorious because they belong to God. And then he looks out not just to believers, but to the unbeliever. Verse 4, the sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. And in a world where many pour out offerings to other gods and idols who find fulfillment in running after wealth or sex or pleasure, David says, I won't. He doesn't say it because he mustn't. It's not, I'd really like to do this, but some rule book says I can't. No, I won't, because it's not good for me. To do so would be an act of self-harm. And David says those who chase these things increase their sorrows. Maybe not immediately, but ultimately. 
And we see that, don't we? Think of those obsessed with their online presence, obsessed with what people think of them, and they're quickly driven to paranoia. Think of the person obsessed with building the perfect home and, and they read Good Magazine or they read Homestyle and, and instead of it being a pleasurable thing to do, they, they're left empty and, and, and anxious because the homes in there are, are better than theirs. David says they just heap up their sufferings, their sorrows. To run after these gods is an act of self-harm. I will not do it. I don't need to do it because I'm safe in God. And then he says verses 5 and 6. The Lord has given him his blessings, and the Lord is his blessing. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Verse 5 is probably better translated, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. But both are true. The Lord's given him his life, as well as the Lord being the chief goal of his life. And that image of lots and inheritances is, as you may well know, an image from the entry into the promised land where the people of Israel were given the land by lot. All the tribes and families were allotted, casted a lot to find out where they'd live with the exception of the Levites because the tribe of Levi was to be a people who God was their inheritance. They're a model to Israel that God is ultimately Israel's inheritance. And David says, that is the way it is for me. Ultimately, you, God, are my inheritance. My greatest joy is you. My greatest inheritance is being with you in the future. But even in this life, my boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. Which, when you think about it, is a bit of a shock for David. Just think of David's life. David, the youngest son of Jesse, with hints that he was fairly despised by his older brothers, the runt of the family... He was a man who, after slaying Goliath, ended up in King Saul's court, but quickly provoked Saul's jealousy. He was chased out of Israel, chased from his family, chased from his wife, on the run at the hands of a murderous king. He knew sickness. He knew the death of children. And yet he prays, verse 6, the the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Isn't that an extraordinary thing to pray? Even though life is hard, I can rejoice. It's not stoicism. It's not pretending that life isn't hard because it clearly is. It's full of grief and tears and pain. But knowing that the Lord is my refuge changes things. The Heidelberg Catechism is a catechism. It might be on the screen. Is it going to come on the screen? Uh, is um, a, a catechism. So question and answers on, on doctrine. And it was written uh, in in, in the aftermath of the Reformation. But what makes this catechism different is it's not just doctrine, it grounds it in life. And I want just, if this is up there, is it coming? Might be coming. I want just to read this to you. I put it on the screen because it's a little bit long. And with my funny accent, it might be hard to understand it. But, uh, all good? Um, the question is, is asking, what does the creed mean? What do you believe when you say from the creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? And the answer is this, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them, that this God, by his eternal counsel and providence, is, for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide for me with all things necessary for body and soul 
and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as almighty God and willing also as a faithful father. You see, there's no denying that life is hard. In fact, what does it call life? Life is a life of sorrow. We think that life should be a life of pleasure. And when it comes, sorrow is the intruder. Actually, in a fallen world, it's a world of sorrow. And when pleasure comes, that's the extraordinary, is what the reformers thought. But adversities in this life are in God's hands. And he will turn them ultimately to our good. And so often we cannot see how. In this life, we cannot know why. And yet, that is the truth of this passage. And even if all that I have is taken away, my relationship with the Lord remains. He alone is my portion and my cup. My delightful inheritance is in heaven. I'm absolutely secure. Well, David carries on. Verse 7, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I do not need to lie on my bed torn up by worries because the word of God is in my heart and guides and instructs me. And then the summary, verse 8, I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. It's a wonderful promise. Trouble will come, but surely I will be secure. Well, friends, do you see the picture? It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Of the one who is able to enjoy the blessings of security, who knows that they are truly safe in God. It's not just a doctrine for the mind. It's certainly not just something for the future, pie in the sky for when we die. No, the one who knows this, the one who can live this, is secure, full of thanks, not worried am I missing out, or what will happen to me, or asking what if, that when the trials of life come, when we grieve and when we cry, we know deep down in our hearts we are secure, and so are not shaken. It's a security that ultimately is possible because of the promise of verses 9 and 10. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Rather, verse 11, I will have eternal pleasure at your hand. And friends, do you see the wonder of this? Even if the worst befall us, even if we leave here and are cut down by a car, even if the coronavirus virus ravishes this land and kills many, we will not die, but we will be ushered into the presence of God in whom, verse 11, we will be filled with joy and eternal pleasures. And because my end is secure, therefore I'm, my heart is glad, verse 9. There is total wellness. Well, friends, it's a wonderful picture. But does it work? Is this not too good to be true? Is this not ultimately, in one sense, just mumbo-jumbo? It's very pious. It's very noble. But is it attainable? Surely this is just the expression of a pious moment of ecstasy as David walks about his grand palace before he returns to the real world. Can we actually live like this? When we think about it, David himself didn't, did he? David didn't constantly believe verse 2, did he? He thought that there was good that was not in God. Otherwise, he wouldn't have snatched it out of another, uh, another man's wife, seeking sexual fulfillment from another man's wife. David couldn't accept that his boundary lines had fallen in good places. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sought to change them by murdering a man. Surely, that was what David was doing. Verse 4, running after other gods, pursuing pleasure, pouring out blood to protect his name. And it harmed him. He was rotten with guilt. Uriah was dead 
his own child died. And ultimately, isn't verse 9 a testimony to David's failure? David did die. David's body did see security, uh, did see decay. So Psalm 16, isn't it just a nice idea? But really, it's something to be filed away in the draw marked dreams. Maybe we read it in a moment when we need some solace, but it doesn't really work. We can't really pray this, much less live it. Or can we? Well, the answer is no and yes. In ourselves, we can't pray this. We're kidding ourselves if we think we can just take these words on our lips. But these words wonderfully point beyond us, beyond David, to Jesus, to the Holy One who did seek refuge in God consistently like this. And in him, in Jesus, we can pray like this. In Jesus, we can take refuge in God like this. There are many ways that Jesus does this. Just think of a couple. Jesus knew, verse 2, that there is no good in, apart from in God. Think of the time when the devil came to him and he took him to the top of the temple mount and he showed him every kingdom, all the kingdoms of the world, and he said, look at these. They can be yours if only you'll bow down and worship me. And, David said, and Jesus said, no, be gone, for he knew there was no good apart from God. Or think it was Jesus who honoured the saints in the land. A, a rich Pharisee comes to him. He st- stands before a high priest in all his finery, before Pilate, and he isn't wooed or wowed. No, let the little children come to me, because to such as these belongs the kingdom. Who is my family? Well, my mother and my brothers and my sisters are those who do the will of God. Or consider verses 5 and 6. You alone are my portion My boundary lines have fallen in good places. Surely Jesus shows us that that doesn't mean an absence of pain or grief. As Jesus weeps great huge tears uh, tears of blood in the garden. As his soul is in anguish. But ultimately Jesus knew the truth of this. That the Lord alone is his portion. That as he suffers, not in spite but even in the suffering, there is joy. For he knows he does his father's will. And Jesus dies, an unbearable death, but verse 10 holds true. He was not abandoned to the grave. His body did not decay because God raised him. That's the point that the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, make in Acts. In Acts 13, Paul quotes these words of verse 10 and says, David's body is decaying. It's long gone, but David points to Jesus. Listen to what he says. He quotes verse 10. You will not let your Holy One see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, as he addresses a crowd, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. And friends, wonderfully, if we trust in Jesus, every sin is wiped away. But more than that, Through faith, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are united to Christ. And as Paul says in Romans 6, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will also certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That in Jesus, we can say these words. Because we are united to him, I am not holy, you are not holy, but if you're a believer, you are united to the Holy One and can say in Christ, you will not abandon me, even me, to the grave.
And friends, because this is true, the logic of verse 9 holds. We can say, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body will rest secure. And because verse 10 undergirds the whole psalm, we can enjoy all of these blessings. We can know this deep security. We can participate in the blessed life. Now don't mishear me. What I'm not saying is David didn't do it very well. Jesus did it perfectly, so copy Jesus. That's not much hope. It's a little bit like somebody coming to me and saying, James, you want to improve your golf swing? Well, just copy Tiger Woods. Well, that probably would help me a little bit, but ultimately it's going to give me deep despair. I can't be like Tiger Woods. We can't be like Jesus. No, this says not be like Jesus. Know that Jesus has done it. And so take refuge in Jesus. And if you do, you are safe. And the Holy Spirit will help us to see the fruit of this as we begin more and more, day by day, to enjoy the blessings of 2 to 8. Jeff Bezos is the founder and CEO of Amazon. He's been in the news this week because he's had his emails hacked, hasn't he? Well, I'm told that Jeff Bezos spends several millions a year on security, including having former Marines guarding him. In his office in Amazon HQ in Seattle, he spent over 200, uh, nearly $200,000 on uh, bulletproof glass. And this bulletproof glass can stand us assault uh, from uh, assault rifles. That's the kind of place that uh, Jarwin wanted to be, didn't he, as those guys came. It's absolutely safe. But imagine if um, Jeff Bezos went to work and every day there was a bit of fear. And so as he walked in, he drew the curtains and then he took a rug from his sofa and he pulled it over his head and sat under his desk and worked away on his iPad, all hunched up, timid and coward. We'd say, what are you talking about? You're safe. You're in a bulletproof office. There's Marines patrolling around outside. Well, friends, if you trust in Jesus, you are absolutely safe. If you don't, then this safety is not yours. But if you do, it is. And that means we can live like two to eight. We don't need to hide under our desk, worried what might happen. We don't need to worry what we're missing out on. We don't need to, wor- to run after idols. We don't need to be discontented. We don't need to worry about the lot that was assigned to us. And yet so often we forget this. We end up doing the spiritual equivalent of hiding under our desks, frightened, jealous, and discontented. Well, friends, if you catch yourself doing that this week, come back to Jesus. Remember, he died, and God raised him for you. Say, thank you, Jesus, that I am utterly safe. Why not pray through this psalm and thank him for these blessings? Why not repent of the things that we the ways we don't enjoy these blessings and we forget them and say, Lord, by your spirit, help me to be the, people you've, the person you've made me that I'd know that I am utterly, utterly secure in Christ. May God keep us all safe because we've taken refuge in him. Let me pray. Father, I pray that we would all know this security. Pray for those who maybe haven't casted upon Jesus. Pray that you would help them to do that. But for those of us who have sheltered in Jesus, help us to know the wonderful truth of these things. And we pray that we wouldn't be living, cowered under a desk, but that even in the midst of grief and suffering and hardship, we would know that we are secure. We pray that all would be changed because we know that you will not abandon us to the grave because you did not abandon Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.